Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Officials in Minnesota are discussing the process to transfer state park land to Dakota Tribal Control. It's a historic prospect championed by a native lawmaker. And tribes in Virginia and California now have control of land returned to them after complex transactions involving private and publicly held properties. They're among a handful of significant land swaps, gifts, and purchases that provide opportunities in some cases and healing in others. We'll hear about them coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A nonprofit is shedding more light on the history of Indian boarding schools in the U.S. and Canada. The Mountain West News Bureau's Milwaukee reports. The group's new map documents 523 schools, more than 100 above the most recent list by the U.S. Interior Department. They were run by federal governments or churches with the goal of assimilating Native Americans into white culture. The students' hair was cut, and they were sometimes beaten for speaking their language. Samuel Torres is with the coalition focused on boarding school healing that made the map. The impetus of boarding schools was always indigenous erasure, was the removal of native language, was the removal of the influence of the family, of the home, of the nation. More than 150 schools were in the Mountain West, with many in the Four Corners region. Torres hopes to gather more testimony from survivors in the coming months. We're going to need this moment of, of accountability in order to be able to chart a path ahead towards, uh, towards healing, towards justice. Torres says the map will be updated later this year to include more archival records. For National Native News, I'm Will Walkie in Laramie, Wyoming. The knowledge, work, and art of indigenous healers and medicine people in Alaska is being featured at the Anchorage Museum. Good Medicine is a multidisciplinary exhibit. Alaska Public Media's Rachel Cassandra has more. Good Medicine features paintings, illustrations, a women's house, and a men's house. Those houses are traditionally used for healing, teaching, and meetings. Mita DeWitt's Tlingit names are Katuklat, and Saitsi Nak, she's a healer and the curator. DeWitt says the show is both about healing and is healing in itself. She says it holds space for traditional healers to be seen and to speak. That's in contrast to colonization's attempts at erasure of Alaska Native culture. She says healers and spiritual leaders were targeted during colonization because of how they protected people. Many folks were sent to insane asylums or penitentiaries, or they were just taken out into the woods and went missing, never came back. For decades, Alaska Native people were forbidden from practicing traditional healing. So she says people are choosing ways to adapt practices. We have to first fully articulate who we were pre-contact to understand how to adapt it so that we are 21st century Indigenous people on our own terms. Ultimately, DeWitt says that acknowledging the trauma of colonization is part of cultural healing. Let's not whitewash history. Let's work as a community to seek healing and repair so that way our future generations don't have to carry on that burden any longer. The exhibit Good Medicine will be up through the spring. In Anchorage, I'm Rachel Cassandra. 
the indigenous-led organization Indian Collective and the human rights group Amnesty International USA are holding a rally at the White House Tuesday. Indigenous people and allies are calling for the release of Leonard Peltier. The event is being held on Peltier's 79th birthday. For nearly five decades, Peltier has been imprisoned in the U.S. for the deaths of two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. Peltier, Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, has maintained his innocence. A march and action are taking place in Washington, D.C., as well as a group of speakers, including tribal leaders, advocates, a U.S. lawmaker, and a former federal judge who's counsel to Peltier. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at AARP.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The state of Minnesota is in the process of transferring state park land back to Dakota tribal control. Among other things, the park holds burials from the 1862 U.S.-Dakota War. After decades of lobbying, the Upper Sioux community now joins tribes that are successfully reclaiming important and even sacred land. The Upper Mattaponi tribe in Virginia are reacquiring more than 800 acres of land. The tribe plans to use the land for conservation and cultural purposes. And in California, the Weot tribe welcomes several acres returned from state and city hands. One of their initiatives is to build housing on their newly reclaimed land. We'll check in with tribal leaders and others on some of the latest native land transfers in the country and plans for the future. As always, listeners are encouraged to join our conversation. Has your tribe recently received land back? Tell us all about it by calling... 1-800-996-2848. And with that, let's go ahead and meet our guests on today's show. Joining us from King William County in Virginia is Chief Frank Adams. He is the chief of the Upper Mattaponi Tribe. Hello, Chief Adams. Welcome back to Native America Calling. Well, hello, Wingapo. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Chief. Joining us from St. Paul, Minnesota, is Dr. Amber Annis. She is the Director of Native American Initiatives at the Minnesota Historical Society, and she is Cheyenne River Lakota. Hi, Amber. Great to have you on the show as well. Hi, Mitakiapi. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Also joining us from St. Paul, Minnesota, is Scott Raimhilt. He is the Director for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region. Welcome to Native America Calling, Scott. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. 
And joining us from California is Michelle Vassell. For more than 25 years, she's been the tribal administrator for the Wiat tribe, and she is an enrolled member of Cherokee Nation. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us here on Native America Calling. Thanks for having us. You bet. And Chief Adams, I'd like to begin with you first by congratulating you on your reclamation of 866 acres along the Mattaponi River. Can you describe this ancestral land for our listeners? What does it look like and what's the history there? Sure, sure. Uh, It's a beautiful piece of property. Uh, It's it, it was before we re reacquired it. It was a active land uh, a mining site. It was a sand and gravel pit. Uh, naturally, we we're on the east coast, so we got a lot of sand and gravel that used for building. So it was that, and we we just wanted it back because it was our cultural property. It was lands that we had to we had. Had our villages and 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 cultural sites on for years because it was on the shallow part of the river, the swampy shallow part of the Mattapunai River, where the, <clears throat> where the settler ships couldn't come in to uh, to harass us or attack us or whatnot. They, the the water was too shallow to navigate with with the larger boats. So that was our homeland, and now now we've reacquired it. Uh, in the process of restoring from the damage uh, that was done by the mining operation that was on it for, for the last 35 or 40 years. Mining, sand and gravel for more than 35 years. Well, Chief Adams, uh, tell us about this land uh, transfer process. When did it all get underway and how was it able to be successful? Well, I think, actually, I think I got a little lucky about it. Because the, once they decided they were, they had mined it, they'd taken all they could take from Mother Earth. They were going to sell it, and the real estate agent they uh, acquired, uh, I knew him personally, so he called me before it went on the market, and we went up and looked at it, uh, some of the tribal citizens, and we decided we would have it. So our environmental director said i think i can write a grant we can get this so we wrote a NOAA grant and uh, after a year and a half a year and three quarters we got we got the grant we got the funding we got all the hoops hoops jumped through and uh, we closed on it about a month ago about a month ago congratulations and i'm curious what was the original asking price when it was listed uh with that realtor Three point two million dollars. Okay, three point two million dollars. So uh, here you are. You're a month in. You've got eight hundred and sixty-six acres there along the river. It's been reclaimed. So, um, what's the next step? What do you folks have in store? <clears throat> well, we've already had a a dedication, a blessing of the ground, a ceremony for tribal citizens. But it's still under a mining pit until March of next year, March of 2024. So we can't do very much to it, but we have, other than make plans, and our plans are we're going to do a fish hatchery to try to restore some of the uh, 
native fishes to the water. And we also just want to make it a a, uh, a healing experience for people to go to and travel citizens to go to and uh, enjoy and, and get that feeling of peace and quiet because it's a large piece of property and you can kind of lose yourself in your thoughts on that property. Mm-hmm. And Chief Adams, this mining site, for 35 years, sand and gravel, I mean, is there a lot of work to do? There's some cleanup involved or any kind of major efforts that need to go into taking uh, care of, of some of that waste or any other damage to the land that, that occurred because of that mining operation? Well, they have changed it. It has changed. You can't take that many tons of uh, so, uh, sand and gravel out of a property without changing it. But... You know, the mining rules do, does make them reclaim it pretty well, so it's still a very attractive piece of property. Got over a mile of waterfront footage uh, on 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 the Mattapunai River. <clears throat> uh, Mattapunai uh, generally means river of high banks, uh, so even though it's got water waterfront access, most of the it's a really steep cliff on all but one place on that property. So that's where we'll, we'll try to build our fish hatchery, our kayak, canoe launch, and uh, as as we think of opportunities to do some ecotourism and whatnot coming out of the pandemic. So fish hatchery, kayak, canoe launch site, uh, what other types of plans do you have for the land? What else would you like to see there, Chief? Well. We want to we want to restore the forest uh, to native native uh, indigenous trees and things. Now it's just a pine uh, loblolly pine forest, <clears throat> which is not a native tree at all to Virginia. So now that they have uh, timbered all this property and reclaimed reclaimed the pits that they dug the sand and gravel out of. Our, ne- our next big goal is to restore it to some of the native plants that fed fed and housed our people through the years. Okay, okay. Now, Chief Adams, uh, another big win for your people. Uh, it's been about five years since your tribe, as well as five other tribes there in Virginia, received federal recognition. So want to congratulate you for that as well. And how big a factor do you think that is having federal recognition with regard to this recent land uh, reacclimation as well, or reclamation, I'm sorry, this recent land reclamation and any of these other efforts that you folks are engaged in there in Virginia? Oh, it's tremendously uh, important that we, we finally have to all these years got federally recognized. <clears throat> you know, we we were one of the first contact tribes uh, when the settlers came to what is now the United States. So uh, that we 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 took so long to get recognized is, was was shameful. Mm-hmm. You know, shame on the United States government for thinking they had either moved. Uh, annihilated all of us there wasn't any indians left in virginia so right 
you know, with the federal funding and the grant grant opportunities that only only come with federally recognized tribes, not state recognized tribes, uh, it has increased improved our ability to help our tribal citizens get some of our tribal citizens to move back home because <clears throat> they were they were chased off or, or left on their own just to get better jobs and better education, but now. A lot of our elders want to come back home. This is where they, they were born. <clears throat> they want to live their final days back on on tribal land. Mm-hmm. Well, Chief Adams, I really appreciate you joining us today. And before we went to air, I shared a, a little personal history with you. My family has a connection to your people. My, my father was a good friend and colleague of the late Dr. Linwood Custolo, who was a, a very well-known uh, tribal member among your people. And I also understand he was a, a pretty big advocate for land acquisition. So it's just been wonderful getting a chance to meet you and understand you and Dr. Custola are closely related. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Dr. Custolo Linwood, uh, he was my first cousin. His mother and my father were sister and brother. <clears throat> and, and Dr. Custolo, even though he, he didn't, get away and became a very successful uh, uh, doctor, physician. He never forgot his raising. He always came back. It was always about land acquisition. And he mm-hmm. did, he was our chief for for several years. Wonderful, wonderful. Chief Adams, thank you again for joining us and sharing some of this history. And again, congratulations on uh, your reclamation of 866 acres there in Virginia. We'll be right back, folks. A new study finds the number of high school sports injuries are declining, but the severity of them is climbing. We'll find out how native sports trainers keep up with the evolving understanding of youth sports injuries and how they relate to long-term health. That's on the next Native America Calling. Did you know that bare space is best when it comes to your baby's sleep? That's right. When you keep their crib free from toys, pillows, blankets, and other loose objects, you can drastically reduce the risk of suffocation. All your little one needs is to be placed on their back atop a tightly fitted sheet to ensure a safer night's rest. More infant sleep safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are checking in with tribes from around the country that recently reacquired land. We'll get updates on those transfers and the importance of the land they now steward. Is there a piece of land you'd like to see returned to your tribe? What land back initiatives are currently underway in your community? Share your insights and comments with us. Just call 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Give us your thoughts. Give us your comments. Give us your insights. Ask questions. Our phone lines are open, so give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. Now let's move to Minnesota, where we're joined by Dr. Amber Annis, who is with the Native American Initiatives at the Minnesota Historical Society. And Amber, again, thank you for joining us. And can you give us some historical context to this land that is being transferred back to the Upper Sioux community 
from the state of Minnesota. It's land on which tremendous suffering and a horrible tragedy once occurred. Absolutely. Um, first, let me say that, you know, I, I'm uh, Minikoji Lakota from South Dakota, um, and it's always better, no one better than Dakota people themselves here in Minnesota to talk about how the meaning of the land and the historic context. However, I'm very happy to sort of shed some light for all of the listeners. Um, the lower, the Upper Sioux community has a long, long history here in Minnesota. It has um, 10,000, 10, thousands and thousands of years, um, the community has made its home, its homeland within the Minnesota River Valleys. Um, so before the U.S.-Dakota War, which um, the only time that Dakota people in Upper Sioux were not living in that Minnesota River Valley, and that's because of the exile, of the, the exile and the forced removal of Dakota people. But Upper Sioux community folks call that land Pejihut, Pejihuta Zizikapi, the place where they dig for yellow medicine. I think it's a really important reminder for everyone that our people, ourselves, we have names for our traditional homelands. We have a connection to these traditional homelands. And the Upper Sioux community, you know, the people of yellow medicine have been there for thousands of years. Interesting, interesting. So this land there, um, there was at one time uh, a facility there that was supposed to provide rations for the Dakota people. And uh, unfortunately, they didn't, they weren't able to, they didn't do that. They didn't provide the, the enough rations. There was starving and suffering that occurred there. And then ultimately, uh, there was a mass execution of Dakota men nearby in, in Mankato. Can, can you give us a little bit more historical context there in terms of just how significant this land is because it's uh it's not a celebration of, of a wonderful piece of land with with wonder it's tragic history it's sad history it's it's painful history but it's important history none the same absolutely um you know and the reason that i it's important to remind people that this is a tragic history but it does not define um de define dakota folks up here so, you know, an important nuance to this is that during the treaty negotiations, um, when the Minnesota was becoming a state, that this was a piece of land that Dakota people along that Minnesota River Valley that included Upper Sioux and the Lower Sioux communities that were not a part of the negotiations. And that was because of, you know, Dakota people's ancestors knowing the importance of that land. So this actually was a, a piece that was abrogated, right? I mean, so it, it, it emerge later on and as an abrogation right of the treaties so it's i just for me it's important that we remember right that the um, trauma and the hard histories do not define who we are um but the in terms of the agencies that you're talking about absolutely you know the horrible history here around um, particularly the u.s dakota war were these indian agencies that were constructed as a part of treaties and they were rights, you know, I mean, there were rights that Dakota folks retained. They were to be provided beyond the agency's right education, um, food, health care, all of that. And when the U.S.-Dakota War emerged, that the agencies were a first place that were targeted. And it was because the um, agents at the time, the superintendents at the time, withheld rations, um, withheld rations and really, um, you know, traumatic ways, you know, that either were to um, force folks to sign treaties, to force folks to engage right in that treaty process, um, or the other hand, the other part of it was just completely to, to withhold those rations, you know, for that 
purpose of starvation, for that purpose of removal. Okay. And, and this land ha- has been a, a state park, the Upper Sioux State Agency Park, in, in your organization, the Minnesota Historical Society uh, Native American Initiatives. How closely have you folks been engaged with the park prior to this land uh, transfer that's going to take place? Absolutely. You know, um, my colleague next will discuss more um, about the relationship that the state park has had with the state of Minnesota. Um, the Our relationship with the Upper Sioux State Park is around uh, the historical agency that is located, the historical site that is located um, within that land. Mind you, it was burned down um, during the U.S. Dakota War, so what is, exists there now is a, a recreation of that site. Um, in the late 70s, that land was transferred over to the Minnesota Historical Society um, as a steward of that um, of that land, of that the land around the historic agency. And we've been stewards ever since. Um, several years ago, the agency was closed down and it's no longer accessible by public. Um, we do not use it for any interpretive purposes. Um, and so our engagement with Lower, with Upper Sioux has really been around how can we best support um, the transfer of this land? How are we um, working together as partners? How are we affirming tribal sovereignty? And how are we um, making sure that we are advocates, right, also for the desires of the Upper Sioux community? Okay. But that old agency building, it's still there on that land, correct? It is, but it is not the original. It's a, a rebuilt one. It's a rebuilt one, yep. It yeah. was, you know, I mean, th- those the agencies during the U.S. Dakota War, because of the harm they caused, were they some of the first buildings to go. Okay. All right. Well, Amber, thank you as well for kicking off uh, this portion of the conversation. And with that, let's go ahead and bring Scott Ramehilt in. He is the director for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region. And Scott, thanks again for joining us. And are land transfers between the state of Minnesota and tribes common? Uh, I, they definitely are not common. Uh, we take seriously our role to protect natural resources and provide opportunities for the public to use those resources. So it's pretty rare that we would consider removing land from public access. In this case, though, uh, we agree that the significance of the park to the Upper Sioux community and the cultural resources at the park are reasons to support the transfer. Right, right. Yeah, obviously just deep, deep cultural and historical significance there. Now, I do understand that uh, there are some local residents and and some municipalities there that aren't wild about this decision. They say it's going to be a a loss of revenue from that state park. So how serious has that pushback been against this land transfer? There's a lot of emotions surrounding the transfer of the park. Uh, there's people who are very attached to the park. They feel a closeness to the park. And in some cases, they've maybe spent decades camping and hiking there. Uh, and they feel a sense of loss over the park being transferred. But there are also many who understand the significance of the park to the Upper Sioux community, the cultural resources at the park, and they support the transfer. Now, one thing we've been doing uh, to hear all the different voices is through the spring and summer we're, we're, we've held and are holding a number of public meetings in Granite Falls, which is the city closest to the park, to share information and just allow for public input on the transfer. And specifically, we want to learn 
what values people have with the park and then consider ways that those values could be applied to other outdoor recreation. For example, do they enjoy the horse trails, the campgrounds, uh, the scenic setting along the Minnesota River? And uh, so we're, we're grabbing information that way and then also online uh, from people who are unable to attend the in-person meetings. Okay. And is it true that the state is acquiring uh, some separate land, a, a similar amount of land, but separate land to make up for this land that's going to be taken away from the state park and, and, and given back to the tribe? We are looking at uh, what we can do for the Granite Falls area and for southwest Minnesota to replace outdoor recreation being lost through the transfer. And whether that's investment in in one project or many projects is still to be determined. Okay. And tell us more about the official process uh, that needs to come from the state legislature and any other parties. I mean, how much more has to, to occur? How much more logistical effort in terms of getting this transfer complete? Yeah, there, there is a lot involved. Uh, this spring, the state legislature passed legislation directing our department to convey all the state-owned land within the park to the Upper Sioux community. Uh, but before we do that, uh, there's some things that processes we've got to go through. There are federal uh, dollars attached to the land, and there's a process to work through those. Uh, we're working with the National Park Service and Department of Interior on those. Um, they also provided uh, dollars to help with the, the transfer of the land. Uh, for example, right now we're, we're resurveying the entire park. And so a lot of steps involved, but uh, we are making progress. Thanks, Scott. And Amber, I, I want to go back to you because, you know, at the heart of our, our, our show today is, is really this just growing land back movement throughout Native America. And we're just going to talk about a couple of examples today. We've talked about what's happening in Virginia. We're talking about Minnesota now. We're going to talk about California. But um, are you surprised at all with just how much support and just how quickly the, the land back movement just continues to grow across Native America? Or is this something that really it's just it's been time for a long time and it's finally just beginning to manifest itself in a more pronounced fashion? You know, absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for that question. I'm not surprised. You know, I mean, our connection to land, um, our, our um, need, right, to be relatives with the land is so powerful that even, you know, it's taken a bit. It's now the sort of movement that's, that's happening. And for us at the Historical Society, we're actually um, able to follow um, we're able to follow a process that we engaged in a few years ago with a land return back to the uh, Lower Sioux community, the Chansayapi community. So we've kind of got, you know, we, we learned a lot during that process um, of that return, that land return. So we're able to follow those steps, even though this is, you know, as folks have said, the beginning early stages for the Upper Sioux land transfer. It's only early stages for us. This has been a long process for the Upper Sioux community. Um, this has been a long process for all communities that have sought to have land, you know, ancestral land returned to them. Okay. And, and Scott, I, I know one of the critics uh, of this land transfer there from the Granite Falls community has said, look, you know, if you look at all these different parks in Minnesota and other parts of the country, so many of them have cultural significance. So many of them could be considered sacred sites to Native American tribes. 
when does it stop? You know, can we, we can't give all this land back. That's kind of the attitude. And, and what's your response when you hear criticism like that? You hear comments like that from, from surrounding communities that are being impacted by some of these land transfers. Yeah, and as I said, there's a lot of emotions involved. The thing to keep in mind is that most state parks have been established based on rare or unique natural features that are worthy of protection and, and that we want to share with the public. However, in this case, the park was established around the Upper Sioux Agency, which is a historical site that was significant in the U.S.-Dakota War, and so that puts it in a different category. And as other requests come in, they, they will be looked at case by case. And do you see more requests coming in? Do you think after this uh, land transfer that you're going to see other tribes uh, requesting transfers from the state of Minnesota and elsewhere, perhaps? I, I think that's to be determined. Uh, as my colleague said, uh, we just celebrated uh, land back with the Lower Sioux community uh, earlier this summer land from the Minnesota Historical Society that the DNR uh, helped facilitate the transfer. And uh, so that, that was a big event. And I uh, look forward to having a, a similar event with the Upper Sioux community. Well, thanks, Scott. Anything else you'd like to, to share with our listeners about this land transfer uh, before we go to our next break? Yeah, I would just say that uh, it, it's, uh, these kinds of things are not a quick process but we're committed to going through the process and uh, seeing it through to completion. All right. Thank you, Scott. And Amber, you as well. What else do our listeners need to understand about this specific land transfer and other land transfers as part of this growing land back movement we're seeing across Indian country? Um, I think it's important to, for everyone to remember and for us to remind ourselves that a lot of state parks, public national parks, were developed, right, and created because of not only the knowledge of Native people, but also then the um, um, abuses, right, of treaty rights. So that's always an important reminder for everyone that we are starting, you know, that the, the public sort of interpretation of these sites stems from Native knowledge. Um, and the land back movement is really, again, this initiative is really about um, tribe, uh, affirmation of tribal sovereignty and self-determination. You know, it really is about this um, repairing harmful injustices that have happened because of the U.S. government policies, because of treaty violations. There is no one better to care for our land than Native people, than ourselves. So there's no one better to care for um, Upper Sioux than Dakota people who have had, that's been their homeland for thousands and thousands of years. All right. Thank you, Amber. And we've got time to take a quick call before we go into our next break. And this is a voice we know well here on Native America Calling, Chanupa, listening on Keeley up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, thank you for having me. Um, you know, um, this is what I want to say to Amber and Scott. Listen to this in Lakota. They say this all the time. What I said in our language is that we are forbidden to buy our land back because South Dakota had a group that did that, but nobody's taken the effort to use it. But we dog soldiers of Strongheart, we still utilize our sacred Black Hills for firewood for our people all year round. 
And so more of the moratoriums of way our people have done things past and present, that would be the key. And Sean, thank you for allowing me to give that question and that understanding in Lakota to our two colleagues, uh, Amber and Scott. And keep up the good work, Sean. You're doing great. I love you for that, little bro. Thank you. Ha-ho. Oh, love you too, Chanupa. Appreciate you calling in with uh, good insight as always. So with that, we're going to take another break here. This is the second break from our show. And anybody else who's got a take on, on this topic or if land back is an issue that you take seriously, we'd sure love to hear your thoughts. We'd sure love to get your comments on the air here on Native America Calling. So what are you waiting for? Our phone lines are open. 1-800-996-2848. You can also check us out on social media. We've got Facebook going on. We've got Instagram. We've got those other channels as well. Also, NativeAmericaCalling.com. So we are talking about land back. We've talked about Minnesota. We have talked about Virginia. And next, we're going to talk about what's happening there in California when we come back. So stay with us. Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at aecf.org. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients, and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. You are listening to Native America Calling. Join today's Land Back Conversation by calling us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And let's bring in our fourth guest today, Michelle Vassell, who is the Tribal Administrator for the Weat Tribe. And Michelle, thank you again uh, for joining us and, and welcome to Native America Calling. And tell us a little bit more first about the Weat Tribe. California is a big state, so whereabouts are you folks located and how much land did you have before this recent reclamation? So the Weat Tribe is in what I like to call North Northern California. Most people think of Northern California like San Francisco or Sacramento, uh, but we're six hours north of Sacramento or of San Francisco. And uh, we are on the coast around Humboldt Bay. Our ancestral lands um, are really around, uh, right around the coast at the mouth of um, several rivers and around Humboldt Bay itself. Um, I like to really uh, emphasize the fact that we are ancestral territory is unceded. There is no treaty that exchanged land um, for, you know, we are land, was basically stolen. Uh, there was no legal means by which the uh, Wiat people lost their land. Um, Wiat people survived uh, state-sponsored genocide. Um, in the, I like to think about um, Wiat interaction with um, settler colonialists as they had probably the the most horrific experience because people came to this area to extract resources from it. And uh, and they were very greedy people. You know, first they came for furs and then they came for um, gold and then they came for salmon. I mean, people from all around the world came to just extract all the salmon from the rivers. Uh, and then they came to take the trees. This is home of the some of the largest trees in the world 
um, Sequoia Redwoods, and uh, and they came for the trees. And this extractive practice brought some really greedy and awful people to this area. Um, and that all that contact uh, is happening long before the United States government controlled this area, um, before California was a state. Um, and it was uh, really just individual people coming here to like make their make their riches, you know, and <clears throat> The state of California actively um, participated in genocide of Wiyot people, and the mm -hmm. United States government came in at some point and attempted to relocate Wiyot people, and there were several attempts to uh, four different locations, but no matter how many times they relocated people, Wiyot people out of their ancestral territories, they came home. Okay, um, so Michelle, so I'm, I'm sorry, Michelle, so the Currently, before the the act was uh, the reclamation, did the tribe own any land? Was there were there any tribal lands official? Well, our land backstory really come like goes a long time ago uh, mm -hmm. in the night in the early uh, around the turn of the century in the nineteen hundred, um, where we up people uh, like individual we up people. There's one new we up person named Dandy Bill who uh, was able to purchase land at a time when it was illegal for native people to own land in California. He was able to purchase land and he allowed his land to be used for other people to live on. So it wasn't just for him and his family to survive on. He allowed okay. other Wiat people. But it, but it was technically privately owned land that he allowed the community to, to, to use, sounds like. Correct. Gotcha. And then in 1900, um, we got people were able to privately collect enough funds through a church group to purchase what we today call the old Table Bluff Reservation. And that old reservation was purchased with private private funds uh, through donations uh, uh, to purchase back the old Table Bluff Reservation. And that, again, became a place where we got people could return home. It was owned collectively. Um, a lot of generations of people that live here today, their parents lived on the old reservation. Uh, and that um, that reservation um, was uh, as many people, as many native people throughout the America um, experienced, um, it was allotted during the allotment period. So in that individual land was divided up to individuals rather than held collectively. And um, allotted to individuals and then the tribe itself was terminated so it ceased to be federally recognized so here we go to the next stage of of uh land back for the tribe the tribe um came back and said you know hey what do you mean you you can't uh take land that we bought with private money mm -hmm. and uh and and you know give it to someone else you know <laughs> right so right. Uh, the federal the the uh, tribal council at that time, led by uh, tribal chairman Albert James, sued the um, U.S. government, and they won back in two different lawsuits. They won back, uh, were able to reinstate the tribe as uh, as federally recognized. Um, but in a separate lawsuit, they sued over the land and were able to force the federal government to um, to purchase back land. Uh, that the tribe now calls the new Table Bluff Reservation. Okay, so and, and Michelle, is, for some context, what years are we talking about here when the termination uh, that occurred? Is, so uh, we're talking originally in the 1950s uh, okay. is the termination period. And then uh, in the late 80s is when uh, the the land at the new Table Bluff Reservation was purchased. Got it. 
So in, in that middle period, um, Albert James also was working towards uh, return of a piece of property in the middle of Humboldt Bay that is religiously and culturally significant to the tribe. It is literally the place of the creation story where the creation story tells that we have people come from this island. It is also a place of a ceremony that is very religiously significant, not only to the Wiat people, but to the surrounding tribes. The surrounding tribes participate in this ceremony annually, and it literally moves through uh, five separate tribes as to complete the cycle. And so this was very, very, very important piece of land for Wiat people, and it had we have people have become dispossessed of the land as a result of a massacre that happened in 1860 in the middle of the ceremony. So in the middle of a, a ceremony that's meant to put the world back into balance, settler colonials from Eureka snuck onto the island in the middle of the night when all the men were off the island and murdered um, women, children, and elders who were sleeping that night. And they used very quiet instruments like um, hatchets and axes and, um, and murdered people uh, while they slept. Um, and the city of Eureka the next morning woke up and they saw the blood in the bay and this horror that had happened. Um, it was one of lots of massacres that were happening at that time period that were very similar, these sneaky um, um, coming into the night and um, and um, and murdering people. They were happening all over the area, but this one happened in, a, in, in the middle of the bay. And uh, we just so happened to have a reporter from San Francisco who was visiting. His name was Bret Hart. And he wrote about this, uh, what he saw that morning, and it made worldwide headlines. Um, okay, and what was, was the, what was the date of, of, this, of this slaughtering that you're describing? It was in February of 1860. Okay. Right. And so uh, he he worldwide headlines the Eureka is labeled Murdersville, and this became a real shameful history for the 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 city of Eureka. But I think for Wiat people, they always intended to return to the island. And you know, I'm not going to say they never illegally trespassed on the island over you know the hundred of years that it was they were out of possession of it, but. Um, but, you know, it wasn't legal for them to be there. And so Albert James, uh, at some point, right after the massacre, this island was purchased by an individual, uh, or I don't actually know if he purchased it, he acquired it somehow, but it was owned by a man named Gunther uh, for, for many, many, many years. And, um, and he acquired it immediately following the massacre. Um, so this was in private property for a long time. And at some point, the city acquired a large portion of it. And so okay. um, Councilman Albert James went to the city in the 70s, and he, and he really campaigned the city at that time to return the city-owned portions to the tribe. And I like to think at that time, the city really wasn't ready. The, the island really represented a very shameful history of this area. I like literally left a blood stain on the city of Eureka. And I really don't think at that time they were ready to confront that history or. Um, okay. You know, Michelle, this. this is all really fascinating history. Really appreciate your, your breadth of knowledge and what you can explain, but if in the interest of saving time, if, cause we're kind of winding down the show, if you could kind of click ahead here and get to the present day and how this current, uh, reclamation is unfolding and how much land are we talking about? It sounds like a, a few acres and, uh, and what's the plan for the tribe with the land? 
So the city, uh, the city ended up, uh, two of our tribal chairwomen, um, Cheryl Seidner and her sister Leona Wilkinson, who were nieces of Albert James, picked up the baton in the 1990s. And they were able to um, eventually uh, purchase back 1.5 acres of land on the island. That was uh, land that the, the tribe really spent 14 years restoring that land. It was an environmental hazardous waste site. Okay. And what um, year was that, that the 14 acres were? Uh, 2001. Okay. And then, uh, and then in 2004, uh, after, you know, watching and, and this work that they were doing in the community, um, in 2004, the city of Eureka became the first city government in the history of the United States to ever return land to a tribe um, without being court ordered to do so. And that was 40 acres of land on Tulalot, and it was adjacent to the 1.5 acres that the we originally uh, purchased. And then in 2019, the city again made headlines uh, when it returned uh, the remaining city-owned parcels on the on the lower end of the island, on the southern part. And that's 200 acres, uh, acres of land uh, that they transferred. And I think the real big difference between the 40-acre transfer and the 200-acre transfer is that the in the 40-acre transfer, uh, it came with a whole bunch of deed restrictions. In the 200-acre transfer in, in 2019, it was, uh, there's no deed restrictions. There's, it was no strings attached, uh, transferred to the tribe. And that was a big, huge um, success for the tribe. Um, in 2021, the Wiat tribe developed Dishkama Community Land Trust. And that is a tribally, you know, we were experimenting with different ways to hold land as I was talking about uh, in the 1900s. Uh, the the tribe um, had bought land with private money, put it into trust, and then it was divided up and allotted. And so, you know, the tribe doesn't always want to put land into into federal trust. And so we started developing this Dishkama Community Land Trust, and we're the first tribe to have developed a community land trust under tribal law. So this community land trust is actually a component unit of the tribe. It is developed under tribal law, and it is uh, run by our tribal government. Um, and with that, we our, our community land trust has two arms. One is uh, protection of green space and uh, cultural uh, and environmental restoration. And the other arm is, um, is uh, related to affordable housing because like what's happening to indigenous people all over the United States and really in California, it's, it's happening exponentially. Um, where indigenous people are being priced out of their homelands. So that's happening right here. That's happening right now. And like I was talking about earlier, how people have come to extract things out of our, our, um, our lands. This right now, what we see is that that's happening with housing. Okay. Is that housing so the plan been... and the plan, Michelle, is to use these, these acres of these recent, the most recently acquired acre to, to create housing for the tribe. So tell us, uh, in these last couple of minutes, uh, how you plan for, for that to unfold? So in 2022 and 2023, we purchased a series of um, of commercial structures. One of the things that our land um, that our land trust is working on is developing affordable housing, and we do that by um, by working on um, instead of cutting down uh, green spaces and develop uh, like cutting down forest or um, otherwise green spaces, 
uh, we're protecting those green spaces and we're looking inside of our community at places that are unloved or uncared for and we're redeveloping or like just un, uh, not no longer useful as they were built um, to create housing for people. So in 2023, the tribe uh, acquired a large commercial structure and two old Victorian homes through a state grant. And uh, we're working to remodel those into 39 um, both transitional and permanent housing for young people aged 16 to, uh, to 24. Um, we're also, uh, we also recently um, won a bid in uh, the city of Eureka to take two parking lots that are city owned and convert those into uh, 93 affordable housing units. So we're looking at ways where, you know, we think of the way that we're doing our work with housing as like, connected to the work that we're doing with environmental and um, and land restoration and uh, that these things that these things go hand in hand or work together that the um, that the that you know housing work and affordable housing work is uh, climate action change or climate change action okay so and Michelle quick question the, quick question as, as we wrap up so uh, the the land trust that you described is that the vehicle going forward that uh, the we Out people are going to use for for continued uh, land acquisitions is that the model you think works best for you there in California I think it's really important to to note that it's one tool in our in our tool bag you know you know, there's there our our uh, reservation is owned uh, in in federal trust, uh, and that's appropriate for this reservation. And uh, that and the tribe might choose to put other lands into federal trust, but uh, but the land trust actually offers just a different model, a different way of holding land that's uh, separate from fee simple land, which we own. You know, land in fee simple too. So. Uh, it's just different ways of holding land and having choices and in the the tribe in uh, being able to express its sovereignty and having choice in how they hold their lands. Right, right. Okay, Michelle, great information and uh, really helps uh, kind of cap off our discussion today and talking about California and how you, your tribe has this array of different types of, of land, fee land, federal trust, as, as well as the land that's been acquired through this tribal trust. So great information here. I want to thank all of our guests who joined us, Chief Frank Adams, Michelle Vassell, Dr. Amber Annis, and Scott Raimhilt for land back updates in Virginia, California, and Minnesota. Hope you'll join us here on Native America Calling again tomorrow when we talk about addressing high school sports injuries. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Stay safe, stay sovereign. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. I would describe the SBA as a treasure. They were there to help lay a foundation. They have people that are full of wisdom. I think that's the biggest thing. I wouldn't be where I am without those resources. They've supported me, they've loved me, they've been there, they've showed up, and they believe in what I can do with my business. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Quantic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.